Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Karen Swallow-Pryor and Heidi White. Karen, Heidi, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, David. It's good to be here. Yes. Can't wait. So we are here to discuss Sense and Sensibility a little bit more. Uh, For those of you who have the three-volume edition, we are going to discuss the first seven chapters of Volume 2. So Volume 2 is chapters 1 through 7. For the rest of you, I think it's chapters 23 through 29 or something Something around that. Uh, pick it up after the shocking ending to chapter 22. So um, we're going to discuss that in a second. Quickly, though, I need to talk about our friends over at Escondido Tutorial Services. Our culture needs more fine minds who have an understanding of the great ideas of Western Civ. The dying art of civil discourse is one that needs practice and finesse. And your junior high and high school students can hone this art through studying with 25-year teaching veteran, great books tutor, Fritz Henrichs. I said it wrong last week and I was corrected, so I'm trying to get it right. Henrichs, not Heinrichs. His five-year survey of the great books of the Western world includes the works by the likes of Homer and Plato and Calvin and Shakespeare and Dante and Chaucer and Dostoevsky and Kant and so many others. Each week, students meet for a two-hour session discussing the reading and learning to dialogue with one another. They're required to write papers several times a semester, and the opportunity for two free years of classical Greek is offered to students enrolled in great books two and three, while free Shakespeare accompanies year four. So you get some free courses when you sign up for the great books courses. Fifth year students are going to write two 3,600-word papers and present them uh, in Escondido or online, answering questions from Mr. Hendricks and the assembled fellow students. Those who are interested can also join a four-day gathering each June full of debate, readers' theater, singing, dancing, and fantastic fellowship. Guided by the joyful Christian wisdom of Mr. Hendricks and the great books, join a conversation full of truth, justice, love, and beauty. To find out more how you can join this great conversation, please visit the Escondido Tutorial Service website today at gbt.org. And again, that's gbt.org. So thanks to Mr. Hendricks and Escondido for sponsoring Close Reads this month. They're longtime friends of ours. Okay, so... At the beginning of this section that we're discussing, we got the sort of semi-cliffhanger at the end of volume one, and then we get the, the sort of fallout. So at the beginning of volume two, we're having Eleanor's kind of counterpoint to Marianne's, Marianne's response to when Willoughby left. So one of the things that I was thinking about is how much Jane Austen seems to be asking us to compare... Marianne and Eleanor. She's giving us very similar scenes uh, where, or very similar situations anyway, where we then have to see that they're responding differently, or in some cases, they're responding the same. And so I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the way she does that and whether we are supposed to, well, I'm going to work, I'm going to work backwards to, to what I'm thinking about by asking this. Do you think, as you're reading volume two here, 
that Eleanor is a good judge of herself. Mm-hmm. You think she knows herself very well. It very is she mm-hmm. honest about who she is? What do you think of that, Karen? That's a great question because in that um, first paragraph of um, chapter one of volume two or, or whatever <laughs> uh, chapter number it is, 23, I guess it would be for some, um, there's the line where, you know, she's asking all these questions, you know, uh, rhetorical questions after learning about Edward's engagement to Lucy and, mm-hmm. um, and, and she's trying to ask herself, was she, you know, did Edward really like her? Was she mistaken? And it says, um, his affection was all her own. She could not be deceived in that. And that line Mm. could not be deceived in that is so interesting because, um, it reminded me in rereading this, it reminded me of Elizabeth Bennett and her confidence in her perceptions and her judgment yeah. of character. And of course, we still don't know yet if we haven't read the whole book, whether Eleanor um, was deceived or not. Um, but she's very, very sure of herself here and her judgment um, about Edward's character. And yet, you know, she's not as sure, you know, she thinks we just had a parallel scene where Willoughby has left Marianne and she's not as sure about that. And we, we know Marianne, well, I, I don't want to give too much away, but it's interesting because we think that Marianne's judgment is not as reliable. Um, mm. But, you know, we're in for a few surprises. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting because at the end of the reading for this week, we get the scene where Marianne gets the letter from Willoughby and she's mm-hmm. super upset and Eleanor is reading the letters and, and they're having the conversation and Marianne says, I know he loved me. Mm-hmm. And it, she basically says exactly what Eleanor said right before the line that you read. His affection was all her own. Marianne's basically saying her, his, his affection was all my own. I know it. I know it. I know it. Right. I could not right. be deceived in that. So right. we, that's an example. That's what I was talking about. Like we, we keep getting these where they're, they're kind of, running into the same situations over and over again. And we're forced to look at the way they respond. And, and it seems like on the surface, they're, they're meant to have responded differently. But then in the mm-hmm. end, they kind of respond the same way. I mean, they have maybe different temperaments, but their responses mm-hmm. are both. His affection was all my own. She, she could not, I could not be deceived on that. I found that really fascinating. And that's, what, that's why I ask, I, does Eleanor... I mean, are they both... It's obvious that Marianne, or it seems like it's obvious that Marianne is being deceived. But is Eleanor also not as self-aware as she thinks she is. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidi, what do you think? It's a good question because I, I've i always thought of, until this very minute, uh, exactly right now, with what you two are saying, <laughs> I have always thought of Eleanor's assurance of um, Edward's affections as a flaw in the book because um, I think it, it lessens the suspense and the pain of what Lucy has told her. Um, like, well, if mm. she's sure that Edward loves her, then that's, it just doesn't seem as sad and hard on her. Um, because so, so at least there's, they can, she and Edward can sort of share this, this, this Romeo and Juliet type drama together. Right. I, and especially considering that, um, the way that Edward treated her at his last visit to Barton Cottage, when he is a little bit more aloof from her, when he's not quite as affectionate towards her and, and she wonders why. And then it seems to me that with, you know, through 
knowledge of human nature, then she would question his affection. And then finding out he was engaged to somebody else, she would think, well, maybe he never really loved me. So Mm. I've always thought of this as a bit of a flaw. And uh, partly because of what I just said, just knowing human nature, it seems like she would question that. And then also because um, it seems that it kind of lessens her suffering internally uh, mm-hmm. this that she's not questioning his affection like what you just said david that it just kind of makes it well there's these outside obstacles not just like does this man really love me and but with what you two are saying with the parallelism between Marianne's response to Willoughby and Eleanor's response to Edward then maybe it's not a flaw maybe i've been interpreting it wrongly or missing something every time i've read this novel so, because what you just said made a lot of sense that both of them respond to the obstacles with, at least I know he loves me. So, what got me thinking I, about? I think, oh, I, no, I, I think some of the, the some of the drama um, in all of Austin is is for for the, us as readers, like we talked mm-hmm. about last time. You mm-hmm. know, we have to, we can't. This isn't a story to get lost in. We have to constantly mm-hmm. be on our guard, and so as readers. You know, Austin sets us up to trust Eleanor's judgment and not trust Marianne's. Right. And so, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't turn out as simple as that. Hmm. Right. There's there's this line in chapter, well, volume two, chapter one, that got me thinking about this because it, it at first glance, it felt so ridiculous. It's where she's, she's thinking about, um, she says... So well was she able to answer her own expectations that when she joined them at dinner only two hours after she had first suffered, and this is the bit that I uh, was laughing at, suffered the extinction of all her dearest hopes. No one would have supposed from the apparent the appearance of the sisters that Eleanor was mourning in secret. And mm-hmm. that, that little phrase there, the extinction of all her dearest hopes, makes mm-hmm. that sentence, that bit of characterization, pretty complicated, I think, because on the one hand, it, it does seem that she is being more noble, more, you know, more calm than Marianne. You know, she's able to actually go down and have dinner and no one would know the difference. That's something that Marianne would never actually be able to do. But then Mm. Jane Austen drops this little line about it being the extinction of all her dearest hopes. And that's such hyperbole, (laughs) you know, that it it makes it, it makes me question, you know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we all like maybe get. Maybe she is dramatizing a little bit, right? And we, uh, but it's also a very human thing, right? Like yes. when we're feeling things very deeply, we do kind of probably high, make the stakes bigger than they were, or are, or we make things a bigger deal, or we feel that you know, we we would say it feels like it is the extinction of all our dear soaps. So it's both human, but it's also a lot like something Marianne would say, just buried mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. Eleanor's different personality, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And yeah. I, that's one of the things I love about Austin is in that one sentence, it feels like she, she can say so much about what's going on in a character. And that's, so that's what got me thinking about how, how she's more alike than her sister mm-hmm. than maybe it seems like on the surface. Right. But I didn't ask a question, so you can just talk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's, a, I think that's exactly right. And, and we're, yes, uh, we're constantly being asked as readers to make judgments about the interior thoughts and decisions and perspectives of these characters. And, um, and it's, and it's never, it's never simple and it's never black and white. So given that, do you think, so, I mean, she, she kind of talks about how Eleanor mourns in secret and Marianne mourns out in the open is sort of the, 
sort of the, I mean, I know it said that about Eleanor anyway. Mm-hmm. Is Austin making a judgment about one of those two approaches? Like, do you think that Austin is saying that Marianne is more right to respond the way that she is or vice versa? I think it's pretty clear, as we've been saying, that if Austin is making a judgment, it's on it's 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 towards Eleanor's way of managing, which is very um, British too, right? There's there's a lot of a there's the cultural expectation that that this is what good breeding is. A woman doesn't show her feelings in public, and so that. Keep calm and carry on, right? That's and, right, which is yeah. everywhere in England. <laughs> right, you walk right. in England, it's everywhere, even to this day. Um, but it, And there's also this sense of Eleanor is carrying um, Marianne as well, because Marianne is, is not showing good breeding. She is, she's, she's rude to people. And so mm-hmm. Eleanor has to not only kind of... Uh, hide and restrain her own emotional responses to this sad thing that's going on in her life, but also be somewhere she doesn't really want to be. She didn't even want to go to London. And she is covering up for Marianne all the time and taking care of all the people in the room. So it's an enormous amount of pressure she's handling with an enormous amount of grace. And I greatly admire her for it. So, and I, I think that Austin, yes, sets her up for that. You know, and and biographical. I'm not a big proponent of biographical criticism, but it can be helpful and interesting. And biographically, uh, we would associate Jane Austen with Marianne. Mm. She was in real life the younger sister, um, from what we know about her Cassandra, her older sister, and their relationship. Um, Jane would have been more like Marianne and Cassandra more like Eleanor. Hmm. And so I think even though we are clearly, the novel is clearly making a judgment in favor more of Eleanor than Marianne, the reason why, one reason why it's so complicated and so nuanced and so good is because because there are element because we can relate to both and clearly Austin mm-hmm. herself can relate to both characters and can poke yeah. fun at both characters and satirize all of them. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's just nuanced that way. Mm. So that's interesting. I don't think, I didn't, I didn't know that she was, I mean, I knew she was younger. I didn't know that she was, she, she would have seen herself more in Marianne or, or what, or whatever. Um, in some ways, there is an energy to the writing in Marianne, which you could, it doesn't surprise me because it kind of feels like it's been lived. <laughs> some of the way that she, some <laughs> right. of the way that she acts and behaves, um, I, I, I suppose I'm, I assume she kind of takes it to an extreme a little bit. But do you? There's this. There's this. Um, you know, Lucy kind of has says the same thing that Marianne and and Eleanor were saying like these women are all sure that the person was in love with them until they're not sure anymore. <laughs> um, Lucy's sure of it. You know, Eleanor thought she was sure of it and then she's not sure of it, but she also doesn't really think that maybe that Lucy and Edward belong together. And, and then Marianne thinks that she could, she'll make Edward happier. And, and, you know, <laughs> so they're all very, well, I'll ask it this way. It is at the heart of what's going on here. Do you think there is a is there's a pride factor going on in each of these these women that that is kind of driving their responses? Oh, I like that question a lot. I've been thinking a lot of this time about this this way around about the lock of hair hmm. in the ring, and 
Um, which is, to be honest, I've never, let me say this. I've, I've not ever read this novel with a purely literary kind of reading. Like I've, I've just read it for fun. Like just Mm -hmm. picked it up over the summer and read Sense and Sensibility or watched the movie or whatever. I've never taken a class on it. I've never studied it. Uh, so this is the first time reading Sense and Sensibility for me that I'm looking at it from a very literary perspective and trying to kind of draw these threads together, not just, you know, reading for fun. And I... Are you going to make, make a joke now about threads and hair and something uh, like threads that? Threads and hair. I wasn't going to, but I feel like <laughs> I should. And I'm sorry I missed out on that opportunity. Um, Honestly, that, that was kind is, of low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it was such low-hanging fruit now that you say that. Um, I, well, now I can't think of a joke. Man, I'm so bad at jokes. I say this all the time when I speak. Like I'm just the worst of jokes, so people are just gonna have to handle me not. I knew I I distracted you. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) Um, That I'm I'm wondering a lot about this lock of hair. It seems complicated because it it kind of breaks up the. Eleanor is so full of sense and everything that she has all this sound judgment and she never sees anything from her through her feelings, whatever. But that lock of hair, she was wrong about. So I'm curious what you all make from that. I think that is such a deft touch on Austin's part. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it turned, you know, it, the way it's presented at first when Eleanor is so sure, we, again, we don't question her judgment and it just makes sense. And um, and yet she she turns out to to be wrong. And it's it, it's wrong about such a sentimental, personal, um, hurtful, ultimately hurtful thing. Um, It's just beautifully done by Austin. I think so too. Yes, it has this subtlety to it and this humanness that it humanizes her in a book in which she does everything right. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's really lovely. Right. And it shows her to be romantic and um, have sensibility as well. Right. Mm. It's interesting that you say that in a book where she does everything right, because I don't know why, but I found myself being much more um, critical of Eleanor in in this reading and this week. I I don't, I have no idea why. Maybe I'm just predisposed to be critical right now or something, but, (laughs) but, but I was thinking about how she often does the right thing. But, you know, underneath the doing are sometimes she unmasks herself in through the narration or through her thoughts, um, which is true of all of us, right? Well, we might, we would all want right. to do the right thing. But, and she even tells me that's something she's constantly encouraging Marianne to do. You know, you have to go back out there. We have to stay here for a couple more days because of civility, because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I know you don't want to. We have to put on a brave face and do this. It's kind of, seems like it's Eleanor's, you know, mantra. But then, but then at the same time, she's, at times she unmasks herself either, you know, the, you know, we begin to see where she's prideful or mm-hmm. where she is judgmental. You know, there's that, there's that hilarious line where she says, it says that she blushed for the insincerity of Edward's future wife, uh-huh. um, which is, a, that's, that's a great, great bit of writing, but it on unma- it kind of, in some ways it unmasks her own prejudices, her own, uh, the way she looks down on people and things like that. So she does the right thing and it's good to do the right thing but she doesn't always do it for the right reasons or the right motives, or she does it despite herself. And huh. I think that deepens, that deepens her character. I mean, I think it makes her more human. It makes her, it makes her um, kind of 
you know, it keeps her from being just an archetype, I think, in some ways, mm-hmm. where we might just look at her as sort of some kind of, you know, archetype. Like Elsie liter- Dismore. Yeah. Just like, yeah, oh, just like do whatever. That. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right, and, like, wait, go, ahead. go ahead. No, 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 go, go. go. When, she, when she, you know, in chapter two of volume two, um, when she gets the first opportunity to bring this subject up again with Lucy, um, clearly, you know, to get more information, to, um, to, to, to show herself as having the emotional upper hand, um, after receiving this information. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily wrong, a wrong thing of her to do, but it's certainly right. She's not being a wallflower here. She's not just just giving into this information and giving up. Um, and so I really like that about her character, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and Austin slips down. We talked about this a couple of times. She slips in and out of these narrative voices. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't know if it's an ironic voice, Mm -hmm. if we're supposed to take what she's saying at face value, or if, or if it is, as David, you said earlier, a character not really knowing herself Mm -hmm. as well as she thinks she does. And so I've, I've, been paying a lot of attention to that in this particular section, like this crucible section, right? When they, <laughs> when these young women are under the gut, when they don't know how it's going to turn out and the men they love uh, are slipping out of their grasp, then what, how, how did they respond to it? And as you pointed out, do they know themselves? So in situations like that, like why did she talk to, this is what I would, if I was teaching this novel, why did she have that conversation with Lucy? Is are we getting the full story? Is this narrative voice ironic, or is this narrative voice? Are we supposed to take it at face value? And I I think that that's kind of what leads to um, some good discussions and interpretations of this novel. One of the things that I love is that you know, as we're talking here, I'm realizing I said I was being critical, and I think Austin's inviting us. You know, she's revealing more of this character's flaws, and Mm -hmm. she's inviting us to be critical. Which, and when I say it's critical, it doesn't mean I, I didn't. I, I I felt like I was being critical, but I didn't. It didn't make me like her less. You know, in some right. ways, it makes me like her more because, as I said, she's she's more. It makes her feel more human. And it, in some ways, what it ends up doing is tying her. The things that were critical about, critical of her about, in some ways, allows us to tie her with Marianne by the end of this section. Like they're tied mm-hmm. together. They're experiencing the same things. They're kind of linked at the hip or arm and arm or something. And you mentioned a crucible. They're going to kind of have to move forward together. And so being that we, I think had we not, had we seen, um, had we seen Eleanor as just this sort of pure, well, I don't, pure is not the right word. This, this like standard, you know, to this, kind of perfect standard archetypal character and archetypal again that's not the word i don't know what the word is that i'm trying to think of right now but she it would have been hard to link her with marianne and not see them and see them actually kind of as partners in what they're enduring and having to go forward together because we would have said right it would have she would have been so much she would have been so much better than marianne we would have it would have been too difficult to see them as real partners so to speak do you agree with that or, or am i overthinking it I do agree with that, David. And I, one of my big questions is and has always been in this middle section, should Eleanor have told Marianne about her conversation with Lucy? And I understand why she couldn't in the sense of she had already told Lucy that she wouldn't say anything to anybody. Right, and so, yeah. you know, yeah. you got to keep that. You got to keep your word. I, I, I really do get that. But in terms of 
you what you just said, the relationship between the sisters, kind of the uniting through suffering and moving forward. Should she have just confided in Mary Ann and created that bond? And um, and then I have just always wondered why she didn't. If it was really that about her word, or if there's a part of her that just didn't want to say. That's a good question. I, I've never really thought about that. I do think it it's consistent with her character. Mm-hmm. And and again, this is one of the more, I guess, black and white binaries of the novel. But, you know, Marianne doesn't hide anything. She blurts everything out. And, and Eleanor, you know, she keeps things to herself and in the, and very literally in the, in this um, pain that she's carrying, she does. And I, I find that very consistent with her character. It's, it's just like even too painful to speak mm-hmm. of, even to her sister. Do you, right. do you, do you think that she is, um, that she views herself as a better, as better than Marianne? There's that line yes. in three where <laughs> she says something like, she didn't think it proper that Marianne should be left to the sole guidance of her own judgment. <laughs> Yes. Um, but then she also recognizes her own inability to uh, condescend to anticipate enjoyment to for another line on the opposite page. She seems to, uh, you know, recognize her own limitations to some degree. But so you, so you, you would say, yes, she, she definitely looks down on her sister and she thinks she's a better, she's better than her. I do. I think that, but I don't, again, as what you said earlier, David, I think is really important. That doesn't change my admiration and affection for this character. I really like Eleanor. I, I think Eleanor is a remarkable literary character and I'd want to be her friend. Um, But yeah, I think she does have pride in her soul towards the excesses of sensibility in Marianne and in those around her. Hmm. And I mean, I think Austin is also here as in all of her works making a moral judgment um, Mm -hmm. and it is a moral judgment against excessive sensibility. And so she does that primarily through the character of Eleanor. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting, that's interesting that you say that she, you know, she, she, she makes the judgment. She allows us to make judgments through this character. And yet at the same time, she's not making Eleanor this perfect character who is the model makes judge model judgments herself. That, comp- mm-hmm. that seems to complicate things in some ways as far as uh, as readers are making our own judgments about these characters because the primary character who is making judgments about some of these other characters is someone who we also have to judge and determine the wisdom of their own of that person's own judgments it becomes a little bit of a like <laughs> one of those russian nesting dolls thing where you, <laughs> you can get kind of lost in it or like a room with mirrors on every side right um but I guess that gets to the weight, to the complexity of making judgments and wisdom and all those things that we deal with every day anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, right, I guess that, right. that's it's, the brilliance of it. Yeah. I mean, right. it's what makes this a novel, not a sermon. Yes. Mm. Yes. But Austin does seem to take Eleanor, I think, very seriously in this novel. She doesn't mock her or even in those little flashes that we get you know, some of the passages that you read, David, and things that you referred to, Karen, there's there's kind of a, a little bit of that light mockery of Marianne, um, but not really of Eleanor. She doesn't really mock her. She takes her seriously throughout this novel. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? 
Yeah, I, I do. And I actually, um, think, yeah. And I want to make sure we get to in relationship to this question, to the, what I think is almost like the climactic point of the novel, um, which is when Marianne encounters Willoughby. Uh-huh. Um, I think there, there's so much going on there that, that is uh, huh. surprising maybe. And, um, and very, very nuanced, not to keep using that mm-hmm. word, especially in, in Austin's treatment of Marianne. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, let's look at that then. That is in, that's in uh, four, chapter four? Is that, no, five. Uh, or right? six, I think, five or six. <laughs> <laughs> One of those All chapters. the things that I said was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, the, the ball room, right? Or is it... Uh, it is six. Um, yeah, it's yeah, got to be six. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, read a little bit of that then, and then we can discuss that, um, especially if it's, as you say, the, the climactic moment in the novel. Um, and I want to keep an eye on that question of the, whether Jane Austen is, ever mocks Eleanor, because um, I actually kind of disagree with you a little bit, Heidi. Um, Good. I like to be disagreed with... <laughs> think it's more respectful than it is to Marianne, but I think right. it's pretty harsh sometimes. Um let's so in my volume and so let's see, it's page two oh four in mine, but I've got the um vintage classics one for anybody's got that. Um it would be let's start with the third let's start to start with the third paragraph, third full paragraph I think, where it says they had not remained in this manner long. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's um, page 167 in, if you have Penguin Classics, which is what I have. Okay. Um, Karen, why don't you, do you want to read a couple paragraphs sure. for us? Okay. Um, so they had not remained in this manner long before Eleanor perceived Willoughby standing within a few yards of them in earnest conversation with a very fashionable looking young woman. She soon caught his eye and he immediately bowed, but with attempting... with out attempting to speak to her or to approach Marianne, though he could not but see her, and then continued his discourse with the same lady. Eleanor turned involuntarily to Marianne to see whether it could be unobserved by her. At that moment, she first perceived him, and her whole countenance glowing with sudden delight, she would have moved towards him instantly had not her sister caught hold of her. Good heavens, she exclaimed, he is there? He is there? Oh, why does he not look at me? Why can I, I speak to him? Pray, pray, be composed, cried Eleanor, and do not betray what you feel to everybody present. Perhaps he has not observed you yet. This, however, was more than she could believe herself, and to be composed at such a moment was not only beyond the reach of Marianne, it was beyond her wish. She sat in an agony of impatience, which affected every feature. I'll do one more paragraph. (laughs) At last, he turned round again and regarded them both. She started up and pronouncing his name in a tone of affection, held out her hand to him. He approached and addressing himself rather to Eleanor than Marianne, as if, a, as if wishing to avoid her eye and determined not to observe her attitude, inquired in a hurried manner after Mrs. Dashwood and asked how long they had been in town. Eleanor was robbed of all presence of mind by such an address and was unable to say a word, but the feelings of her sister were instantly expressed. Her face was crimsoned over, and she exclaimed in a voice of the greatest emotion, Good God, Willoughby, what is the meaning of this? Have you not received my letters? Will you not shake hands with me? 
<laughs> I do like that next sentence though. He could not then avoid it, but her touch seemed painful to him. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is one of those lines in Austin that's kind of funny, but also <laughs> sad at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you you were talking about there's there's so much nuance here. Um so I can you can you say more about that? I, I was struck in by some of the little the little actions that she has the characters making. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean it's the whole I didn't take the, the this is all the way a few more paragraphs, but um yeah, I yeah. think you know, this is the scene, it's the scene of Marianne's greatest pain and shame and embarrassment. Um, and Eleanor's um, pain for her sister and her inability to do anything for her sister. Um, it's where Willoughby's sort of caught red-handed. Um, it's where both of their extremes with Eleanor knowing she needs to do something in this situation, but she can't. She can't, you know, for a moment speak and Marianne blurts everything out. Um, it's mm. uh, It's... And it's it's so painful to read here. I think we we feel so much pain and compassion for Marianne that whatever else, other judgments we have made about her and are making of her now, I think we just ultimately feel her pain with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems to me like in some ways whatever mocking to use Heidi's word Jane Austen did of Marianne earlier, that's kind of stripped away in this moment. Mm-hmm. Like it'll, which maybe that allowed, maybe that's because had she been mocking, it wouldn't have, it would have been, it wouldn't have been able to have that. I don't know. Pathos. Right. It wouldn't have been a very much on her side. This is a truly tragic scene. It's really sad. And there's, so as as Karen, what you both said, there's so much going on here that reveals the character of all of these people, including this little paragraph right here about Willoughby. He could not then avoid it, but her touch seemed painful to him and he held her hand only for a moment. During all this time, he was evidently struggling for composure. Eleanor watched his countenance and saw its expression becoming more tranquil. And after a moment's pause, he spoke with calmness. And then he he says something very dismissive and you know barely polite to these people with whom he has had the greatest of intimacy, which is clearly a dismissal of them from his life. Um, and I mean, this whole scene amounts to a public shame and breakup of Marianne here. Um, and so there's, but it's Eleanor, as you pointed out that Karen, there's so much going on. Eleanor is watching this whole thing. Mm-hmm. She's just, it, it goes behind her eyes to watch the shame, the shaming of the public shaming of Marianne. And her sense can do nothing in, in this yes. situation, mm-hmm. right? It can't, That's right. it can't fix it. It can't, <laughs> it's powerless here. Right. The only thing it can do is beg Marianne to be composed. Yeah. Right. Right. Of course, it even says that Eleanor was robbed of all presence of mind. Uh-huh. She doesn't know what to do either. Right. In the face of his cruelty, there's no, there's nothing she can do to publicly kind of assuage that. But, and okay. make everything safe and comfortable and how she, as she, she kind of wants to get this back under the control of the social expectations here. Mm-hmm. So you say you call, you called him cruel, mm-hmm. um, which maybe that's true. But at this point in the novel, 
given what we know, if we haven't read further, say, in some ways, I mean, you call it tragic and all that. It, couldn't you couldn't couldn't one say that the tragedy is maybe? I mean, how how much of it is actually his fault is one of the big questions that that as we're deciphering the plot and all that, you have to kind of figure out, right? I mean, if someone is acting that way and you don't think you're in actually in the kind of relationship with that person that, that they think you are, then how are you going to act? I mean, he seems like a coward, you know, on the surface, but then also if you, if we have, depending on what we know, I suppose you could say that maybe he was put into the position where there's no right way to act. Right. Well, there's no, you're, you're right. And I think this is getting to the heart of some of the big kind of human questions of this novel, which is if you are judging everything by sense, mm-hmm. then you're right. Like he's inquired after their mother. He is, you know, practically engaged to this other lady. And so he can't just go around talking to these other women. Like there's, you, you he could by the kind of mores of sense, he could justify his actions, but to, through the eyes of somebody like Marianne, who's pure sensibility, mm. he has he no has, excuse, no defense. Right, right. Based on the emotional connection that he had with this young woman, even though he never, as from what we know, we really just we still don't know their the extent of their relationship, which has been a big troubling point to Eleanor. So if we mm. knew more, I could tell her what to do. I could, I could help her figure out how she, what she should do. That's what Eleanor is thinking. If they're, I just need to know if they're engaged or not. Mm. And that's been such a big deal to her um, in trying to figure this out. But as I really love what you just said, Karen, in the face of this, what, is, what good is sense? What can sense take back control of this relationship? And, and then the sense, you know, a chapter or two later when, you know, Willoughby, the infamous letter that he sends Marianne, <laughs> um, like, which is just such gaslighting, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it's, again, that that's that's where sense, it, how can you make sense out of, out of his denial of, anything having happened between them emotionally. Um, it's, it's just a, it, it, in that sense, it, it's such a modern, compl- you know, mm. complicated, dysfunctional, emotional relationship that Austin is portraying here. That is, yeah. um, that is not outdated at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> some things are, I guess some, some failures with humans just kind of are eternal, I suppose. Right. Right. The big change is that now Marianne's actions wouldn't necessarily violate any right. social norms. Right. And so there mm-hmm. wouldn't be the same expectation for Marianne to hide her feelings. But that the naked raw emotion of this is universal. This is this is really I I mean I do stand by. This is a really sad scene. Um because Marianne loves this man who has communicated that he loves her back and then he just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And now he is publicly shaming her for that. Do you think that Marianne's, um, the way she just kind of behaves, generally speaking, um, makes it, it makes it easier for Willoughby to just be like, oh, she's just hysterical. She just kind of made it all up, right? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's able to write that letter to her that he writes 
because she acts the way that she does or, or in, in other words, it enables him to just kind of be a jerk <laughs> like without, yeah. it's sort of, I don't know exactly what I'm saying. I'm well, not we excusing. Find, we find Willoughby, out I'm later, to... we find out later without giving, you know, that the letter, there's a more of a story behind the letter too. Um, right, right. So yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it does go back to Eleanor's proper judgment that Marianne put herself at risk in so many ways by um, not just getting emotionally attached to Willoughby, but doing all the things that only engaged couples um, were able to, or even engaged couples wouldn't go off unchaperoned. um, Uh, um, Marianne has put herself at so much risk. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, to David's point, I think that there is some sense that um, because Marianne is generally known to be an emotional young woman of great sensibility, mm-hmm. then it is easier to dismiss her mm-hmm. um, because of that. Yeah, and um, but the the social expectations of the time would have frowned upon that um, and kind of wanted to put her, kind of train her how to show and display better breeding. Yeah, her her um her attitudes, her the way she she goes about her life, the way she's you know so she has an open book. In some ways, it it forces us as readers, you know, because we know that about her, it forces us to make a decision about how much we're going to be on her side at this point. Right? How, how trustworthy is she, despite the way that she acts? So it puts us mm-hmm. in as readers in kind of an interesting position. The reason I ask. I bring that up that I even brought that up and and why I even mentioned maybe we shouldn't be too harsh on Willoughby. I don't want to defend him, but because is because of what Eleanor says at the end of seven, after she reads the letters, there's Mm -hmm. that bit where it says she describes it as a letter of which every line was an insult. And then she said that she says this and which proclaimed its writer to be deep in hardened villainy. I mean, that's, it's like, uh, Beatrice in March You Do By Nothing talking about Claudio, um, uh-huh. when she says to Benedict, you know, kill him. <laughs> um, right. you know, it's, it, it's got that feel to it. it. Maybe not so extreme, but also played by Emma Thompson. Now that I think about it. Um, uh-huh. yeah. but she's making a very bold statement there. She's describing this guy as a villain. And so I, w- I'm wondering if, are, are we supposed to, are we supposed to take that as fact or are we supposed to, um, are we supposed to take, you know, how, how are we supposed to read that description of him? I mean, cause it's going to, it's naturally going to call color the way we think about this guy, the rest of the book. You can't just drop something like that in there from your protagonist and it not impact the way we think about him. Right. Yes. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I said there's not the same kind of gentle mockery and uh, overt ironic voice when speaking through Eleanor. Mm. She is, when I read that paragraph, I think to myself, even if I don't know Austin, like the full kind of scope of the, of the social norms of the day, I'm going to read that and say, there's something in this letter that, that makes him a hardened villain. Mm. So yeah, I do take that as this is how we are, we are supposed to feel about Willoughby right now based on everything that has happened do you think we would have had she not included that line karen um, you can jump in here too if you want yeah i mean i i think that um 
especially in the earlier novels like this one, Austin was drawing heavily on character types, which uh-huh. is villains and rakes and, you know, damsels in distress. And, um, and yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, I think she, there's a currency um, in the literary genre that of her day that, that was more resonant than it is, is today. But um, yeah, I, I think Willoughby is a type of a villain. <laughs> I was thinking that's just how, in some ways, how harsh that word that word is. It's not, you know, he's he made a bad choice, or he's even. It's even worse to say that he's a villain than it is to say that he's a manipulative jerk. You know, and I, I was thinking about how, yeah. in some, when I was reading the beginning of the book, I they were thinking about how there's kind of this fairy tale sort of vibe to it with the the there's the dad's gone. You know, the 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 concept of these two children who are orphans to some degree it seems like she's playing off that a little bit and but then so i've kind of been you, you can if you read if you think about it from that perspective you're kind of always waiting for the shoe to drop for the for the big bad wolf or the what's the witch in hansel and gretel you know something like that to show up right. and this is the first time we get you know some just the concept of of a villain preying on their these these children for lack of a better i mean if i'm going to take that you know analogy further um but that but that is it is a very harsh way of putting it and it really draws the lines in the book Mm -hmm. in a way that's um in some ways it tells us how to read the book i feel like like we're at the point now where we're saying the lines have been drawn you know what side to choose the rest of the book goes from here this is not the same Mm -hmm. book anymore right I think the, yep, the way that Austin ends up complicating what at this time were you know, character types is that she brings um, to bear the sort of social circumstances and questions of her day. So, you know, we find out in many cases without giving much away here, you know, we find out that uh, someone who is a villain or someone who is a desperate young woman is partly made so because of of the the rigid rules of the society concerning marriage and money and so forth. And so, so the, there's an element where Austin's criticism her social criticism complicates the character, the characters she portrays. Mm. Right. So will right. it be, you know, will it be as a villain, but as the story goes on, you know, we come to understand some of the, the social circumstances that, exacerbate you know his own yeah. situation yeah right yeah. there continue to be reversals in this novel but this is the first well i would say the second major revelation in this novel the first is that edward is engaged to mm-hmm. lucy Steele, uh and then we have willoughby as a villain right and so there's <laughs> And so much suspense has gone. This is the middle of the novel. So much suspense has happened up to this. Do these men really love them? Are they going to get together? Is this going to be just an easy kind of love story? No, there's these obstacles in the way. Ah, (laughs) Edward is engaged to somebody else and she's not worthy of him. Ah, Willoughby is a hardened villain. Like, so what's what's going to happen next? There's, uh, as you point out, David, I really like what you said about the fairy tales. That there there is kind of an this kind of primordial archetypal feel to some of these revelations in this novel, which I like. I like that it's uh, within the comedy of manners. There's still these kind of dark depths of human experience that are being plumbed and exposed and brought to the surface. Okay, so you bring up Edward. I'm glad you did because if. 
if Willoughby's a villain, why is Edward not a villain? Well, that's explored within the novel, right? That that she, Eleanor, you're you know, telling us she, it's in again, the text. Yeah, <laughs> again, she is, is. Are we supposed to take um, Eleanor's kind of musings at face value? Does she mm-hmm. have sober judgment here? Does she know herself? Because she lets him off the hook pretty easily. She says, Edward. "Well, I know he loves. Yes, I know he loves me." And then she kind of and and oh, he shouldn't have led me on. And then hmm. she just kind of trails off at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she kind of she she she's forgiving uh, toward. Edward in a way that she's not toward Willoughby, right? Well, but what's, right. Inter- what's interesting about that, though, is look at the end of chapter seven, because then Marianne lets Willoughby off the hook, too. She, when uh-huh. she says, she, she says, it says for a moment or two, she could say no more. But when this emotion had passed away, she added in a firmer tone, Eleanor had been cruelly used, but not by Willoughby. Uh-huh. Dearest Marianne, who but himself, by whom can he have been instigated? By all the world rather than by his own heart. Um, That's right. And so Marianne's doing the same thing that Eleanor. The, the biggest difference is that Marianne, you know, the way she, the, she built it up so much by her, by her actions publicly and privately, by the way she responded, by, by the way she kind of like waited around for Willoughby and all that. And she acted in such a way that was different than Eleanor. And, it, and then in some ways that almost built, that builds up the sort of specter of Willoughby, which makes him seem more of a villain. I'm not saying he's not a villain, but in some ways, might it be that the way she responds makes him come across as more of a villain than Edward does when it seems like, in, to some degree, they they both led these women on, in, to some Absolutely. degree, anyway. Yes. Well, and that, that's why, again, since and sensibility, we see all these contrasts. You've started out this conversation today with just the right question, David. Uh, uh, let's compare them. It is, you know, it looks so much as though... Eleanor's doing and saying all the right things and Marianne is just kind of like over there feeling all these big feelings. But they do respond to similar situations in similar ways. And that is worth exploring. And I, I think that that's what is, as Karen pointed out earlier, just so brilliant about this novel. All these different threads are weaving in and out and we think we're following one but it kind of comes back and reverses and makes a different picture than we expected. And, and that's certainly true with the way that they respond to the obstacles. And that's very feminine, right? Well, he just did it because he loved me. <laughs> we make excuses, those kinds of things, as long as he loves me. Right. And that both of these women respond like that. Hmm. Karen, so help me out here with this Edward Willoughby thing though. So is Edward not as is Edward less villainous based on the terms, the definition of villain that we're using here? Is he less villainous than Willoughby is? Or is it a matter of I don't know, perspective and point of view that, that shapes that. Well, do you mean um, from the perspective of the characters at this point in the story or from our perspective? I'm thinking, I'm thinking more like from our perspective. Like I think we're, it's pretty clear that they don't view she, that Eleanor is more uh, sympathetic to Edward's circumstances than to Willoughby's. But, but in reality, like looking at it from our point of view, did Edward do anything that much less worse than what Willoughby did? Well, because Edward Edward's engagement took place um, when he was young, you know, younger, and under mm-hmm. the you know sort of authority of his or the you know the in the home of his tutor. So this is another more mm-hmm. minor theme that we find in Austin, but um, is the role that education has in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in civilizing young men, really, because they were the ones who had formal education. Um, I mean, this actually comes up in more explicitly in Pride and Prejudice when Dar- when we learn, when Darcy tells the story of Wickham, you know, that Wickham was kind of a spoiled. Um, mm. And so there's a lot of commentary about education, the role education has in cultivating virtue in young mm. men. Um, mm. And that's not prominent here, but I think there's just, that's sort of the backdrop yeah. is that, um, is that Edward entered into an ill-advised engagement when he was a young man under the tutelage of, you know, uh, an adult who perhaps should have been adults who should have been more adult, <laughs> more adult, right? Watching over the, the children. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think Edwards yeah. is is a little bit more off the hook. Well, a lot more off the hook than Willoughby yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Although, on the one hand, it, it's uh, on the other hand, it seems like. Um, you know, maybe Marianne is the one who needed. Uh, she needed the adult in the an adult in the room. Maybe like right, Edward right. had when he was younger, because she's what seventeen, right? Right. <clears throat> of course, gloss in this whole thing is Colonel Brand- poor Colonel Brandon going in and out of the room with no response. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the reversals are so interesting too, because we keep having people going in and out of rooms, and and I, I'm fascinated by the way authors. Um, portray action in specific rooms and the way people are going in and out. Like that's why I love Woodhouse because in the same short story he'll have he'll have Jeeves slip in and out of a room and he'll use twenty two different words. Okay, we are back. We had um, a little bit of technical difficulty, so we had to call Karen on her phone. So if she sounds different, it's because she's on the phone instead of over the internet, which is not trustworthy. Um, the the internet is uh, the John Willoughby of this show. For lots of reasons. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> um, before before um, earlier, Heidi, you mentioned something about reversals, and I was I was thinking about how Jane Austen uses the way the characters move in spaces. Um, and huh. she'll, she'll draw comparisons between them. I'm fascinated by the way authors do that in books. So, for example, you read P.G. Woodhouse, Jeeves will come in and out of the room and in the same short story, he'll use like 25 different ways to describe the Jeeves walks in and out of a room. Um, you know, everything from uh-huh. like, he'll float in and out to he slips in and out to, to crazy things that only Shakespeare and P.G. Woodhouse would say. But then there's this, <laughs> there's the scene earlier in this section where... Um, Eleanor's talking to Lucy. Um, I think it's Lucy. And they're talking about Edward. And Marianne's mm-hmm. playing the piano. And Eleanor is sitting very still. Um, and then there's another scene where Eleanor's sitting and Marianne's pacing all over the place because she's waiting for Ed- for uh, John Willoughby to show up, right? And Eleanor's sitting and it talks about how Marianne can't, can't sit still. And eventually, um, she kind of forces her to, um, I think, lie down or something like that. But then at the very end of chapter 7 we get this thing where it says they were both silent and Eleanor was employed in walking thoughtfully from the fire to the window, from the window to the fire without knowing that she received warmth from one or discerning, discerning objects from the other. And Marianne seated at the foot of the bed with her head leaning against one of its posts again, took up Willoughby's letter. And after shuddering over every sentence exclaimed, it's too much. Oh, Willoughby, could this be yours? And then she kind of has this little, you know, mini soliloquy thing going on here. But I was struck by the way that there's that, there is that reversal in the way that they're interacting. Like they'll have these deep conversations. And so I was wondering what you think it might represent 
the sitting versus the pacing. Is there something? Is is Jane Austen doing something purposeful there, or is that just me? Is she just you know people pace when they think, and so it's meant to be that person is more deep in thought or something like that. So I was wondering if you guys could help me unpack that. Well, you ladies actually, <laughs> Karen, what yeah. do you think about that? Well, sorry, Heidi, go ahead. No, I just think you're onto something. I I hadn't noticed that specifically, but I think just hearing you say that it makes a lot of sense that. Uh, Marianne has this restless energy, this uh, this movement, this constant movement. Whereas Eleanor, with her emotional restraint, mm-hmm. has a a stillness, and she's always kind of holding herself back from engaging in the environment. Whereas Marianne kind of dominates it with her restlessness. I think that's really good. So then, Eleanor, what do we make from Ellen? The fact that in this scene at the end of chapter seven, here Eleanor is the one moving. What do you, Karen? What do you? How do you? think of that. Is this something that's common in Jane Austen? Well, actually, this uh, I referenced this book, I think, last time, Jane on the Brain by Wendy Jones. It is so fascinating. I don't <laughs> recall that she um, references this scene specifically, but um, you know, this is a cognitive psychotherapist who talks about how Jane Austen gets so right, um, the mind-body connection and um, <clears throat> how, you know, we, how Austin portrays body movements that really um, convey the kind of emotional and cognitive things that really go on that are confirmed now by science. Um, and so this would be a great example uh, to show how Austin really understood human psychology and emotion and affect and um, portrays it so powerfully just in, in, with a few minor details. Mm. That's so Jane Jane on the brain, right? Yeah, Jane on the brain. The subtitle is exploring the science of social intelligence with Jane Austen. Um, it's a pretty brilliant book that uh, you know that <laughs> marries together um, cognitive psychology and Jane Austen's works. <laughs> so I'll try to remember to post that post a photo of that on Instagram or something so people can uh, yeah, just yeah. as a reminder for people. I was your question, David, about why is it Eleanor who's pacing around here? And I'm, I've, I've never thought about this, so I'm thinking out loud here. Um, I wonder if uh, Eleanor is going through here. I, I think this is true. She, she is not a flat character. She, she experiences a trajectory and arc of growth in this book, but because she's so restrained uh, and she doesn't show her feelings, that arc of growth is... It's, readers have to kind of find it. You have to care enough to look for it. And um, I, I think maybe that's some of what's happening here. She mm-hmm. is... Um, she's, she's moving around because her soul is growing here. She's encountering something that she can't control. And... Um, and 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 her kind of judgment of her sister is meeting her great love for Marianne and now a new knowledge of this hardened villain in the world and what's that going to mean? And she has to rise to the challenge of meeting that. Um, and I, I think that some of this movement may be an objective correlative to that process mm. for her. You know what? I just, I'm looking over this scene again. Um, I can't... Later in the scene, Eleanor says, you have to lie down again. 
and for a moment, you know, Marianne does, and then she gets back up again, and eventually they have to give her the lavender, the first literary example of mm-hmm. um, essential, essential oils. oils. Um, <laughs> but wow. but it, it strikes me, I'm, actually, it's probably not, it's probably in the Iliad or something. <laughs> um, but there's no, I can't find where it says that she actually got up again. Like, it doesn't tell us that Marianne got up and walked around because it says she's seated at the foot of the bed with her head leaning against one of its posts. That's a very specific description, right? Mm-hmm. She, takes, she takes up the letter and then she starts talking. But I can't see any... I don't find any description. I mean, I'm trying to look at it while we're doing this, but where it says right. that she so got up again. That's so you're wondering another reversal. Well, it seems, yeah, there's some kind of... Impl- impl- you know, Somewhere along the way, she's back up again and then Eleanor is the one encouraging her to sit down. So in this one page, in this one scene, it seems like they almost switch places a couple times. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Without, it doesn't, good, without us necessarily even having... Or, or Jane Austen just doesn't know what she's doing and she forgot to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> That's never the answer. <laughs> <laughs> huh, no, I think that's really good because that's the thing that they have to learn from each other. Right? Eleanor needs... And that's why I asked the question earlier, should Eleanor have confided in Marianne? And I don't know the answer. I'm not necessarily casting judgment on the answer to that question, but Eleanor should engage with relate let people speak into her life and comfort her and help her um it is not good for a person to be alone right and so that's but marianne really does need to learn restraint she needs to learn sense um for the sake of her reputation for the sake of her health for all you know all these things that kind of the second half of the novel explores and mm-hmm. and so this might be as you're pointing out a, an intentional um kind of reversal of body posture to reflect what's coming in this novel or to foreshadow what's coming and it, it even says that um Marianne Eleanor says lie down again and, Mar- and Marianne does for a second but she keeps shifting from one posture to another and mm. that kind of mirrors the way they're kind of swapping postures in some ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah. She ends the she ends the chapter quiet and motionless. Those are the last words of the chapter. <laughs> yeah, on the bed, quiet and motionless. Yeah. This it's the essential oils, man. Mm-hmm. That you know what? That's right. Lavender. Everybody or- <laughs> call your consultant. Then <laughs> 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 <in> Jane Austen. <laughs> um that's really interesting because the, the, she she creates this action without telling it. She goes into this very specific description, but then the action itself is implied through the language, through the dialogue, almost mm-hmm. through the emotions the character is expressing. It, that seems to do that well seems difficult. Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah. maybe she didn't know what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you no, encountered that? Karen, have you encountered that in in all your studies of is that something she does often? What the, the physical motion? Um, well, the way she went from you know Marianne sitting down, and then next thing you know she's standing up, and the only reason we know she's standing up is because Eleanor says lie down again. But then it was kind of it makes sense that she's standing up again because of the rant, the sort of I don't I don't want to use that I use that word loosely the the sort of emotion that she's expressing, but it doesn't tell us that she stood up. Is that kind of the way she moves people just through their dialogue and then revealing it later. Is that common in, in Austin? 
Um, I mean, I, it's not something I've really noticed much. Um, I mean, I took it that she was sitting up before, like on the end of the edge of the bed, and then Mayor, and then Eleanor told her to lie down. So just lie down. Okay, yeah. Okay, right, yeah, that makes sense. Right. That's probably yeah, yeah. So you're saying I'm reading too much into it. Fair enough. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> um, yeah, she was, you know, leaning with the po- her head against the post. Sitting, yeah, yeah. So um, but, it is know, interesting though that Eleanor's. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, lag. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, they always these things always happen. You're watching television or a movie, and the character comes in, and they they don't close the door or something, and then it's it's closed. So I'm sure there are some like yeah, bloopers yeah. <laughs> in here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is it is an, such an Eleanor thing to be standing, and then to to tell Marianne to lie down and not <laughs> to rest. <laughs> like, don't worry, I'll I'll watch. I'll hold down the fort. You rest. I'll watch out. Right. Well, we've been, um, despite technical difficulties, been going for uh, <laughs> over an hour now. So, uh, Heidi, what, what are your final thoughts on this as we move into the next section? And then I'll ask uh, Karen. Right. So, I um, I sent you a message on Slack this week, David, saying, hey, I think it would be interesting to talk about education and sense and sensibility. Um, so and did I ignore I, it? Yes, but that was fine because <laughs> I am a secure person who can bring things up myself. So I just wanted to point that out in relation to what Karen said earlier about the sentence ed- you just said education. is loaded. Yes. <laughs> um, that Karen said that earlier about education and the connection that that I loved how you said this, the connection that Austin draws between education and virtue uh, and within that society, that one of the reasons that Lucy Steele, there's, there's, Lucy Steele is so um, uh, flawed as a person, as a character that she's unworthy of Edward is because she has been improperly educated. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have anything interesting to think about, to talk about, uh, to contemplate that will lead her to become better mm-hmm. as a human being. Hmm. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about that this week, um, that... In, in a culture that was characterized by leisure, by time spent, um, you know, drawing and playing the piano forte and taking walks and having polite conversation with rigid boundaries around it in certain situations, but not in others and that kind of thing, that um, how important an education, I've just been thinking a lot about the role of education in that kind of culture. Um and I mean, in every culture, education is everything. That's why we all do what we do. Um, but I've been thinking about it specifically in relation to Lucy and in this novel. And so I'm going to be paying attention to that, especially as these reversals come with the characters. I'm so glad you brought that up, Karen, too, about, about Willoughby and Edward, the difference between them, how, how much education plays into that, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, you know, that that's one thing. It it's a, it's can be hard to catch. Um, although Austin's language is not that archaic, but um, something to pay attention to in the dialogue is is the improper speaking and grammar of characters like Lucy, um, which mm. is a reflection mm. of their lack of education. And and again, some of it 
it's it's just hard. It's not exactly 21st century English, so it can be hard to catch. But if you if you read something that sounds like oh that doesn't sound grammatically correct or that sounds awkward or rude, um, then you know if it's a character that's supposed to possibly be that way like Lucy, then it then it likely is. Um, and so I would just encourage people to again, pay attention to the dialogue because most of the action is in the dialogue and in the narrative voice. Um, somebody on Twitter complained to me today about Sense and Sensibility not having much of a plot. Um, and, you know, there are a few dramatic moments, but most of the action is, yeah. in, you know, is in the characterization and the dialogue. So, that's Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's not, it's not, there's not plot like it's, it's not The Hound of the Baskervilles or something. But. <laughs> right. Right. Although Jane, Jane Austen meets Sherlock Holmes would have been fascinating. Or zombies. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I guess. I guess. I guess. Good point. <laughs> I have like you, those books, actually. Yeah, have, I think they're fun. Have you read them, Karen? I, I have not. I just. I haven't had time. But I think the idea is funny and intriguing. So I. I yeah. One of these days, I will. <laughs> you know what's really funny about it is that. Just like in the Jane Austen canon, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is the best one. It's better <laughs> than Sensibility and Sea Monsters. <laughs> if only I'd had that idea, right? It's just <laughs> I know. It's kind of brilliant. I love it. it. Yeah, who somebody got very rich off that. Yeah. Such a simple idea. I, such a simple idea, it. too. Yep. <laughs> it's always the simple things, right? Like inventing the internet, which didn't work for us today. Um, I know, right? <laughs> well, Karen, thank you for enduring and putting up with the issues and, oh, yeah, sorry and being, those. <laughs> being persistent. Uh, and of course, thanks for thanks for reading and chatting and being here. Um, it's been really fun uh, getting halfway through this book with both of you. Uh, next week, we will go into the next section of uh, volume two, the next... I'm so excited about reading the second half when things start to come together. And I I just think that's going to be really fun to discuss, you guys. So I'm looking I, forward to it. I always want to say the next part of volume, but then every time I use the word part, it's really not accurate because, you know, I'll, that word actually means things in other, in other books. So I don't want to confuse people, but we are going to be reading volume two, chapters eight through 14 uh, for, for next week's episode. Um, Karen. Is there anything going on that you're up to? That any anything, any classes you're teaching? Anything like that that you want to give a shout out to before you go? I meant to ask you that last week. Anything that I guess if people can go buy your book. Anything else? Uh, yeah, they could definitely go buy the book. Um, well, of course, I'm coming to Cersei Institute in July. Is that right? Is that yeah, when it yeah. is? About a month yeah. now. Or yeah. Conference or whatever. Whatever. Um, I don't know my own schedule. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just mainly writing this summer. Um, mm. so go buy the book that's out there so I can just keep working on the new one. <laughs> <laughs> should, do you, should we encourage people to follow you on Twitter or would you rather us not? <laughs> oh yeah, no, tw- Twitter's, Twitter's a free for all. Find You can find, you can find me on Twitter arguing with people about things like Jane Austen and, um, yeah, <laughs> and other things. Very, various I'm social things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dangerous, right? Um, well, yes. go, so go find Karen on Instagram and Twitter and all that. Um, she's actually a, a great follow. Um, and mm-hmm. of course, thank you to 
Escondido. If you want to find out more about Fritz Henrik's courses, you can do that over at gbt.org. And I want to say again, thank you to them for, for sponsoring. Uh, and I want to uh, shout out uh, our editor, Logan, who spends many hours making us uh, sound better. So thanks to Logan. And if you're friends with him on Facebook or you want to say something on the, the, the Close Reads Facebook group, uh, he deserves it. So every now and then we got to give him a shout out. So, well, Karen, Heidi, thank you once again. Thank you. Thanks, David. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. We'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.